Welcome to Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm your host, Kate Joyner. Last month, QUT Business School and the State Library of Queensland and the Queensland Library Foundation hosted the Queensland Business Leaders Hall of Fame induction dinner. This is the occasion for honouring outstanding Queensland business leaders and their contribution to Queensland. One of those honoured that evening was Don May, CEO of Domino's Pizza Enterprises. For those of us who grew up in Brisbane in the 70s and 80s, it was hard then to imagine that anything groundbreaking would come out of our hometown. Domino's Pizza is one of those success stories. Australia's largest and first publicly listed pizza chain, now market leader in seven countries. Much of this success has been a strong focus on the customer and business process innovation. Don has always held a deep passion for entrepreneurialism and has been a leader in digital retail. He shared his insights on the possibilities of technology with us at a QUT Institute of Future Environments guest lecture earlier this year. I've been hoping that we could explore some of these themes further for Exec Insights, and today is the day. Welcome, Don. Thank you, Kate. It's great to be here. Good. I hope I can call you Don. Yes, that you can. That seems very familiar. Absolutely. That's, that's the Queensland way, I think. Yes. <laughs> we get familiar very early. Absolutely. Um, so when I was preparing for the um, interview, Don, I was thinking about um, pizza um, and childhood and that sort of thing, 70s and 80s. So my first pizza was, uh, and I have to introduce a competitor, my, my apologies, but it was Pizza Heart. Yep. Yep. And, you know, those church-like structures that they yep. had. And it was, uh, it was a big occasion when we had our first pizza, um, and it was the one at Indrapilly, the Pizza Heart at Indrapilly. So I suppose we'd seen pizza in U.S., TV, you know, and wondered what this amazing thing was, and there it was. It was a wondrous occasion. So when was your actual first pizza? Can you remember? Well, actually, yeah, my first pizza also was in, in a pizza restaurant um, in Margate up on Redcliffe. Same thing, a oh. restaurant, and that, that pan, it came sizzling to the table. Table, amazing, theatre. Exactly, and mum and dad were having beer, and you got a pizza slice. And the weirdest thing for me, actually in my early childhood, I actually didn't love pizza. Oh. I thought that the smell of the cheese and the sauce and everything smelt really weird. Really and it wasn't until my later teenage years that I fell in love with pizza, so yeah. So you really fell in love with pizza. Yeah, so that, how was it? I know you've had, you did things before you went to Silvio's. Yeah. But if we start with Silvio, so how old were you then? You started delivering? 17, 18, I just had my license. 17, 18, yeah. yeah. So you had your license and they were into delivery right from the get-go, were they? Correct, so yeah, so Silvio's actually pioneered delivery in Australia. So um, the Bavakwa brothers based out of Red Hill, had a little pizza Red restaurant. Hill, remember it well? Yeah. Yes, up on, um, I think, Musgrave Road. Road. Yeah. yeah. And um, there was a Canadian who walked in one day and said the biggest thing in North America is delivery. Ah. So they went across to North America, saw a little bit about it, but, you know, pioneering it by literally putting pizzas in broccoli boxes. Like, how do you keep a pizza warm and how do you deliver it? You know, they'd call up a taxi driver and the taxi driver would come and get the pizza and take it and... <laughs> And so on. So, you know, very, very early pioneering days. Because that was and the only delivery mechanism, was it? Absolutely, through, through yeah. yeah. Well, we didn't think, it, you know, how do you do this? How do you cost-effectively do this? Um, so, that, yeah, that were the early years. And, um, yeah, and I, I joined that business as a pizza delivery driver. A pizza delivery driver, yeah. And then, uh, so how did, all right, you start for pizza delivery driver for Silvio's. I mean, I know the story, but yeah. uh, how, did, how does one get from pizza delivery at, um, from Silvio's Pizza in Musgrove Road? So Red Hill, through yeah. highest paid uh, CEO in Australia. Well, apparently, yes, and we could talk about that. But, um, yeah, so the um, two years delivering pizza while I was um, studying at QUT Kelvin Grove, which was really, it was different. It was, it was close to Musgrove Road, in fact. Is that yes. why you happened to be, it? because it was close to Kelvin Well, Road? I actually started at Sylvia's in Redcliffe. 
Yeah. And then I ended up, you know, working in the city in my later years. But I got towards the end of my degree, starting to be a high school teacher, and I realised I didn't want to teach. And I thought I had another nine months to kill to start a new degree. Um, and I, um, so I just took a manager's job at the Silvio's store mm. in Redcliffe. Mm. And in those days, they were going to close down all the Silvio stores and turn them into mobile pizza kitchens, which is kind of a forward-thinking idea, but actually limited. Um, and, and so what happened is we had all these pizza kitchens running in Toowoomba. I was running a store that was only going to be temporarily open and maybe closed. Mm. But that store grew like crazy. Mm. And in fact, mobile pizza kitchens failed because the funny thing about pizza is that, you know, people buy most of their meals at dinner time in a two-hour window. So one truck cooking fresh pizza on the way to your house is too limiting. Oh, you have all okay. the asset yeah. for one customer. Mm. Um, so anyway, that, that idea failed. And then, you know, these little pizza stores started to do better and... Before I knew I was a supervisor, operations manager, and then in 90s, and, and became a small shareholder in Silvio's. And then in 93, Domino's came for sale in Australia out of its third liquidation. Yeah. And I went down to Sydney, ran Domino's, the founders ran Silvio's, did that for two years, and then we said, well, we can't keep running two brands. Um, so I, as the smaller shareholder in the group, but very passionate that if we were ever going to be serious, we had to get all the insights from a global scale. And Silvio's was limited in that way. Mm. Um, and, you know, our biggest competitor was Pizza Hut. It was on television 52 weeks of the year and we couldn't even afford television. So, um, yeah, we convinced the rest of the partners that we should become Domino's. And I was so convinced I went out and franchised at the same time. I, I cashed in my shareholding, which wasn't worth much, and got my first store in Morayfield, Caboolture. And that store in the first year became the second biggest Domino's store on the planet out of 5,000 stores back then. And it just literally changed our business and it's a model that we still use today called high volume mentality, which is a way to think in retail. And yeah, over five years I grew to 17 stores mm. throughout Southeast Queensland, Toowoomba, Sunshine Coast, Brisbane, and used the equity in those stores to, um, to buy into the company and become the CEO in 2001, 2002. 2000, when was that? Uh, so in, uh, when I was reading about it, it was that that, that sounds like an uninterrupted linear flow of uh, success and growth, doesn't it? But you were saying actually that uh, profitability only really kicked in about halfway through your story. Yeah, so we, we were all those early years have always been humble. In fact, all the way to 2001, 2002, to put it in perspective, the company only made a million dollars EBITDA in 2001. Um, and this year, you know, we've guided the market around 260. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been an incredible journey since then. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was very, very humble beginnings. And I think humble beginnings are really important. You know, like founders in Silicon Valley often talk about the garage and the symbolism and Amazon working on doors as tables. And, and that, that's really important because it's through those really hard, hard years that when things are well, go well, you get still paranoid. That it still be, paranoid. <laughs> I mean, I, I wake up every day thinking it could be taken away, especially more and more today in the disruptive world. Did you world ever have, have your house against the business? Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, you know, at one point when I was growing so quickly in the days when interest rates were 15% and loans were three-year loans, um, I was signing up to you know pizza stores that cost three to six hundred thousand dollars and having to pay them back in three years. Um, so. All the profit I made went to paying principal interest, and I once had to borrow from my sister just to pay my payroll. Mm, that's so humbling, having it, to borrow very, from Very, very, very humbling, mm. yeah. I've just finished reading um, Shoe Dog, you know, Phil Knight's uh, mm -hmm. story about Nike. So it was very much that story that you broke, 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 broke until suddenly, you know, there's a tipping point. And, yes. Uh, yeah, yes. And it could all be lost in the turn of a, uh, like just one lost deal, and it can all. Yeah, and, and you know, after 31 years, when I look around, you can see really successful businesses just 
they seem to fade suddenly. They don't really fade suddenly in retail. I often it happens over a few years. Of, you know, this, the the seeds of issues are sown a few years before, and then you just see the crash at the end. Yeah. We've got to look forward all the time and disrupt ourselves. Mm. I know that the Phil Knight story was a lot about cash flow. He just never seemed to be able to uh, get on a, a constant stream of cash flow, and his bankers are always up. Is you know, yes. That is exactly right. It's actually, yeah. in many cases, it's not necessarily profit that gets an entrepreneur, it's their cash. It's the cash flow. You know, and, and the reverse way around. I remember sitting during the global financial crisis watching a lot of late night TV in the United States and, and um, you know, somebody got on there from Merrill Lynch and they said, the thing that's going to shock most people is some of the most profitable companies in the world are about to go broke. <laughs> and that is because they're over-leveraged. Mm-hmm. That in the, the hyper cycle of 2007, up leading up to 2007, you know, some of these incredible businesses had just leveraged themselves to the hilt and there was no room to breathe and the smallest little hiccup disrupted. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's what happens in things um, in industries, period, is that often these whole giant industries or businesses exist and they actually exist into a, into a space where it doesn't take much to break them because everyone's betting like they're a jockey on a horse that has to win every race in the good mm-hmm. times. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, you know, we often think about, well, what's, what's all our plan B's and C's and how do you make sure that, you know, you can su- survive incidents um, and that you also always looking forward anyway. Yeah. So you actually do do plan B's and C's because there is one school of thought out there that says there's only one that play, there's only one plan, there's plan A. That's, that's it. If plan A doesn't work. You know, yeah, like you've got to keep, uh, you've got to burn your boats, I suppose, is that philosophy. Yeah, there's yeah, you know, it, a little bit of that. Like I'm a risk yeah. taker, so I, yeah. I actually thrive in risk and it's actually when I think the best work comes out of our business oh, and, yeah. and me personally. Mm-hmm. But in saying that, what I've learned over the years is you can't bet the house mm-hmm. at every, because there's so many people that are involved in all of this mm-hmm. and it's not up to me to gamble their livelihoods away. So whilst we take some pretty big risks, the end result of when we're analysing the risk is, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? As long as no one dies and as long as we don't get taken out of business, it's potentially worth taking on some of these risks. But if someone was to die or, so, or, or we would be taken out of business, then we shouldn't do that. So there's something about that story. You're talking about your Morayfield store, I think. Is that mm-hmm. right? And, yep. uh, and suddenly it was the most profitable store. Um, in Second biggest in volume. volume. Yeah. Yeah. But that says that there's some secret sauce in you that uh, uh, to, like, that was the difference. Like, you were at that store. It's, it's just really learning about people and, and through those hard years is, um, you know, there's all these classic paradigms that academics might put around um, that, you know, if you go to this right Harvard University and this, you know, this Stanford that you're destined to be just successful in life. And yes, that, learning to learn is a really important thing and, and maybe you got there because you actually are quite intelligent and so on. But there's another element that there's a lot of people that, um, that maybe didn't do as well at school and now they've had a couple of years to think about it and now how do they get back out? And they have this immense amount of energy and desire to want to do well and that drives you know, a behaviour that if you can trap that source, mm. you can, you know, some of these people that you can surround yourself with um, can do incredible things. Mm. Today, so, yeah, so you learn a lot about people? A lot about how to, people. How to get the best out of them? Was that the... I think so, yeah, and, and that's still today. You know, if I look at anything that happens, it's always the people in the business that make a difference. You, know, you can have the best idea in the world, but it's all about the execution. We often say in our business, even average ideas can actually be successful if, if the, you know, the team's so far behind them and passionate about them. And some of the best ideas don't get up um, and, and never get delivered because you, know, you didn't put the right people on the bus. Around it, yeah. So is that in the, is that in the choosing of it? Does for the recruitment or it's it's a, it's a recruitment and nurturing, mm-hmm. 
because so what is it? Once again, there may be somebody who's the right fit for the organisation, but then they don't get inducted properly and brought in properly, and therefore they have an allergic reaction to the system. Because, you know, most businesses when they get to a certain size and scale, they have their own immunity systems as well. And so, you know, somebody coming in is is a new alien almost into the into the team, and then. Do you know how does they interact in this biological system, which is a large company, which you know we're quite dynamic and move quite quickly. But even still, there's a lot of cultural things which can't move quickly. There's certain more or less principles and truisms that even if they're not spoken every day, they they're lived. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's this it's this thing of you know how do you embrace talent? How do you um, feed that, you know, that talent? How do you, um, you know, allow people to be the best they can be in these sort of structured worlds that you live in? And, and so, you know, what we try to do, and, and, you know, I study a lot of businesses over the years trying to figure out how, why they're successful, is that we try not to just get into the business of running business, but still get into the business of the customer, our people and ideas, because so many companies just get in the business of running business. So all they think about all the time is systems and process, and that's where all the energy is. And then well, what's the customer outcome again and mm. the team outcome? Well, that did strike me from your um, presentation here at QUT about how customer focus... I mean, a lot of people talk about customer focus, but it is the difference of being, you know, just putting your heart and soul into understanding what their needs are. Uh, and you had it so... I mean, your process innovation and how you'd... Uh, how you understood the the whole journey, you know, of the ordering, you know, or even before that, I suppose, what what motivates someone to want a pizza at this point, you know, and the ordering process, you know, the fulfilment process, uh, and the, obviously the delivery. So, and um, working out strategically where improvements need to be made. Um, I mean, I think that seemed to me like the guts of your success and the innovation that wraps around that, obviously. It is. Yeah. If you can just think of all the friction points with your team in, a, in the business and all the friction points for customers, you know, what's the tensions? And, you know, why is Amazon, um, you know, one of the biggest companies on the planet? Because it just makes all of the process less, you know, they take away all the friction. You know, it, they'll lose money selling a hairbrush. You know, the box and the shipping costs, you know, probably three times more. But what, what the average person who just thinks about every order has got to make a profit. So most retailers say every single thing I sell has to have a profit in it. What they're missing is that a one-time buy can be a multi-time buy. So I bought a hairbrush today and that was my entry. It was a low-risk thing. It cost me $2. Um, but a year from now, I've actually decided to buy my plasma TV or my, you know, my new latest television. And I've even considered buying a car online now. So it's you know what we learned early as one of these insights is that we were very... Um, punitive on a one-time customer buying one pizza. But what we studied and found is that a one-time pizza buy actually can buy a multi-pizza order nine times. So we're just looking in one order and saying, mm, oh, yeah, we've got we, to... That one order has to, yeah, we has have to, to carry this profit. huge profit mm. when, in fact, we're losing all this other stuff. And, and we fall into this trap all the time because we're a business and we're business partners and franchise owners and shareholders and so on. But if you just keep thinking of ways to remove friction for customers and innovate and, and give all this benefit, customers reward you, mm. you know, just innately. Yeah, so that's the old adage about the forest and the trees, hey? Yeah, so uh, it's like seeing, seeing the big picture. Mm. But you know, we, we are a university of technology, so we will mm -hmm. talk about the technology. Yeah. But uh, you, well, I mean, you, I suppose it goes back to the previous conversation about your culture. Um, and, but you have ma managed to achieve an enormous amount of innovation. Mm -hmm. um, so it would suggest that your culture can support that, that they can, mm -hmm. they're capable of absorbing quite a, bot, a bit of technological change. So what are the, sort of your major technological achievements and how did you actually get your company to come behind you on that and execute? 
Yeah, so it, it isn't easy, and I get asked this by CEOs all the time, how did you move your whole company? And often it's, I often look at the CEO and I look at the way that they're embracing things, and it probably starts with them. How much innate um, drive do they have to really actually make change in organisation? When you can, you know, we can look at our, what we call Kodak moments out where, you know, mm. that Kodak absolutely had digital technology and just pushed it aside because they're making so much money out of paper, or Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for about, $10 million or something, you know, and now it's a you know, multi-billion dollar business. So when you look at those sort of things, you've got to be so brave and what we talk about in our business is, is, is sort of um, leading from the edge. How do you get enough consensus people around in your organisation um, to first of all prove out the idea, but if you really do believe, then you're just that obsession back to the board, back to the greater group. And when there's that much conviction and fulfilment from the edge, um, you do you do actually draw an organisation in, but every time we go to the next hurdle, like we're you know, um, I'm in a phase with my board now where I'm, I often sit there and go, I really don't know at this moment in time how I'm going to bring them up to speed, and and so you know it's sort of chicken and egg. If I go too far down some work, then I've spent shareholder money and I haven't got board approval yet, but then I've got to prove something out to take to the board because otherwise it's just all air. <laughs> so you have this immense conflict, and you just got to be able to go to bed and sleep at night saying. I think this is the way to go, and, and sometimes it backfires. Oh, sometimes it backfires, but you've got the trust of your board, is that right? To I think, take it, a few I, leaps? of course, but they, they're still there. Like, So a board isn't there to cheerlead a, a CEO. They're there still for governance. Yep. And it's oh, a great track record, but then hubris can create disasters. So, you know, you can start believing your own, you know, BS. And, and, and so a board's still there to check you. And so what, what our board's been so great at is over the years is, okay, you're successful, and therefore that feeds belief that, okay, potentially there's something here. Mm. But you've also got failures too and some pretty expensive failures in the business. So is this going to be one of those failures or is this going to be one and of those successes? And how can possibly know? Because we're all going into ambiguous territory here. But, uh, well, look, it's, been, it's a very dynamic process and I think sometimes there's just an absolute no and, and, and I've just got to keep coming at it in different ways. And in, in other times it's like run me through the ringer to make sure and test all these ideas but maybe not break the business to then say, okay, go for it. You've got enough distribution, though, that you can do small um, mm -hmm. fail. Yes. You know, you can fail early in one spot and doesn't it infect the whole business? Is that, that right? That's yeah. right. It, that's absolutely right. And that's where we do most of our pre-do-typing. And, and we do. We test literally, you know, tens of things every single week in a pre-do-type phase, which most fail. And then every now and then you get a success and you chase the success. And that's the whole idea here is, right, fail really, really cheaply, as quickly as you can, go from a pre-do-type to a prototype to a minimum viable product to market. And in all of that zone, somewhere, some of the ideas actually do go into quick, pretty quick spend. And even then the brave, I mean, we, I remember just last year, you know, we were into a multi-million dollar product. Um, so go through the prototype. Now we spend $200,000 and we still stopped it there because the next set of tests said fail. And so, okay, let's not go into multi-millions. Yes, we're going to burn and write up $200,000 right now. Mm. But, but you've got to do that because a lot of businesses go, well, we're already this far developed. Maybe this test's not right. Let's spend another couple of thousand dollars. You just draw the organisation mm. down. So it's all this, you know, being smart, knowing, okay, it's all right. Thank gosh we found out now. What happens if we found out when we spent all these millions? Um, so, you know, being, being fortunate enough to be exposed to some very influential people like Dr. Um, Astro Teller from Google X and, you know, some of the senior executives in, in, in you know, Silicon Valley and so on, and, and just watching the way they think through these things, it gives you a little bit of a sense of comfort. Mm. But in all that said, you still got to be brave. Um, to sit in front of, like I remember taking the first iPhone app 
you know, we were the second pizza app in the world registered in iTunes. And, um, and I remember going to the board and everybody, you know, some of the biggest retailers in Australia are saying there's no money in online. And here I am going to my board saying we should do this app thing, which to most um, executives and most people in the world, it looked like a little bit of a toy. Mm. It looked like a fun thing. Where's the business case here? And you can't point to a business case that doesn't exist. And it's just the innate thing about, you know, a pizza store in my pocket, accessible everywhere, all these friction points we could see, and we we're going to solve these friction points with this device. Well, a lot of the great business ideas we at the time, you know, that uh, the venture capitalists say, they look ridiculous, you know, mm-hmm. at, the, at the onset. Uh, so people would stay in your home, you know, like, I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> who, would, who would ever do that? Exactly. Uh, so for the benefit of hindsight. So I suppose that at the time, though, that you, you forget... Uh, how um, risky these uh, ventures looked. Well, I mean, I'm presenting to the board three years ago, we're going into robots. We're not a robot business, we're a pizza company, um, but our Kodak moment is automated delivery and because that's one of the things that, you know, is so disruptive. So how do you get early in that curve and own or be part of it rather than you end up being the renter of it? Mm. Especially in places like Australia. I mean, Australia is the biggest risk um, where, you know, we need some big companies here to fuel the economy and have all the sub-businesses that come off that. You know, we don't have a Google, an Amazon, an Apple, a, a Facebook and mm, so on. Yeah, Alan Cole is always going on about that, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, and Bernard Salt, yeah, yeah. Where, where are our big companies? And, but the problem is society here keeps pushing out the big companies and so, you know, it, it doesn't allow the ecosystems to, to thrive and, and, and so often these, these are built elsewhere. Mm. You know, our drone supplier is an Australian, but yeah. he's in, he's in, um, in uh, Reno. Oh, in Reno. <laughs> but he was, he was a Sydney boy. Yeah. Uh, but he's yeah. building a business in Reno. In Reno. So I suppose the listener will want us to, to um, ask you about that, which is about, so the drones, mm-hmm. um, and you did speak about this at, at QUT, so that the area above the streets and below the, uh, the flight path, yes. that, that's our critical zone. Yeah, right? 150 so. feet to 350 feet in American because we're working with American partners here. Um, but that's the safest place on the planet outside of um, flight paths, you know, where planes take off or helicopters take off and outside of high-rise building and areas. But most of the population, you know, roughly 70% of the population live in deliverable areas. And even high-rises will be deliverable in the future as well as these things get faster and smarter. Um, so, but drones isn't the only answer. It's an automated delivery um, thinking. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is people think, oh, you're taking away jobs. And, and, and you know, one of the things that, um, that I think is one of the most biggest fear-mongering is AI, the machines, the robots. And in Domino's, we look at it different. We call it co-piloting. So, you know, Stoney, uh, uh, Tony Stark is incredible when he's Iron Man. But he still tells that Iron Man is driven by a human. Mm-hmm. It, it's all of the machinery and the machine learning man robots. And, man and machine. Yeah. Man and machine. Mm-hmm. And so, look, you know, you can only look so far into the future. So we look out on a 20-year zoom out. We say, what are all the big themes in the 20-year zoom out? And then we zoom in and really focus on this year's projects to the zoom out. And in that mentality is that, well, if we, if we can make our managers, our team members, our franchise owners, if we can give them co-pilots, you know, Pizza Checker, which is about to launch, which is an AI camera over the pizza, which rates a pizza live for pass or fail, looks for foreign objects, which could be beef on a vegetarian, um, all these sort of things which are negatives to the customer. So how the co-pilot is what we call um, Dom AI, um, 
but they're not, Dom AI isn't there to take away a job. It's to enhance and make the outcome much better. better. Mm. So we have a whole heap of co-pilot projects, which you know, some of them end, end up in robotics. But I'm absolutely convinced in the next five to seven years, we'll employ more humans than we've ever employed, probably even double the humans. But they'll be assisted now by better, Powered safer processes. By the, by the drones and, oh, and other in-store in technologies as yes, well. Yes. Yeah. So we can look forward to that. Yeah. Um, yes. It's exciting. Yes. <laughs> it is exciting. Don, I know that you have other places to go. Uh, we do have a little final segment. So we just ask um, something completely off topic. So that um, what, are you, what fascinates you in the world at the moment, um, outside of the world of pizza, I suppose? Uh, and that's a hard question for most people because people we get in our interview uh, are passionate about something. So mm. it, it's um, hard to say. So have you read something interesting that um, excites you? Or, yeah. Something that's really exciting me, and it's not directly pizza, but the whole clean food environment ah. um, where, you know, um, I still want to eat protein because that's how we've been hundreds of thousands of years bred. Um, but now uh, I want to eat a lot more vegetable, but now it can be in a protein or um, cells that get turned into proteins and the democratization of food. So, you know, the internal thinking that cows are actually old tech, that, um, you know, we'll be able to produce very healthy, good food close to the customer um, and affordably. You know, why should a million dollar um, bluefin tuna, um, you know, why should it cost that in the first place? And, and why are we doing that? You know, why, you know, and, and could that be $5 only 10 or 20 years from now? Wow. And so to me, the whole fascination, um, you know, where, where are brands and companies going to go where right now there's machines that you could bought, pour a bottle of Grange Hermitage at 1986 through a machine and, the, and it'll break down the molecular structure and reproduce it from $2 grape juice. So that's something to look forward to. It's something to look forward to. The whole democratization of this sort of things, and so this is going to shift paradigms like there's, you know, you've never seen before about people who live on laurels of legacies versus what really is creativity and innovation and the new brands, the vibrant brands, because I'm sure luxury brands will exist, and I'm sure that we'll still be chasing the next thing. But those who sit back and just say, well, I've got this design and it happens to be Grange Hermitage and, you know, and how am I going to protect that now? And why, by the way, why should it be $2,000 a bottle? Why should a bluefin tuna? Why should Kobe beef be $250? Why can't every human being on this planet get access to this sort of food? And then the value creation curve goes upstream to say the creativity, the arts, you know, these collabs you're seeing. Like, I love how, like I always think some of the pointiest ends of the earth happen in luxury brands and so on and, and come back out. And, you know, these whole things where streetwear brands are driving the next generation, you know, right. And, and yet the people who, who are the creators are literally, you know, the democratically maybe came out of the, the lowest socio-demographics and are now changing the world. To me, that's all fascinating. Mm. And so I love this whole idea of the, for all the fear I think the world's going to get more and more democratised. I think we're going to be challenged by the whole thinking in governments with how blockchain can work in the future. And we're having a blockchain workshop as we speak underneath on floor four. <laughs> fantastic. And, yeah. and, and, and like you, these things, you know, all these paradigms where people think, oh, you're, you're talking about spooky stuff. It's not spooky stuff. It's, you know, our ability as humans to learn, then learn how to unlearn, only to relearn and unlearn and relearn. Unlearn and re relearn. So for, for organisational leaders, that's the challenge. That's, it is. that's what we exist for in business school, yes. I would say, to um, unlearn and relearn. Uh, 
So on that um, product placement moment <laughs> for business schools, um, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you for coming in and uh, good luck with uh, reporting to the market next Thank week. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. You can comment on the podcast or make suggestions for future guests at execinsights at qut.edu.au. We would love to hear from you. If you would like more information about professional development for yourself or your team, please search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of programs. I'm your host, Kate Joyner, with sound recording and editing by Lance Scaife-Elliott. See you next time.